Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure this week to welcome to Talk Nation Radio David Sheen. David Sheen is an independent journalist and filmmaker. He was born in Canada now and for a long time has been reporting from Israel-Palestine. His work focuses primarily on racial tensions and religious extremism. In 2017, David Sheen was named a Frontline Defenders Human Rights Defender, the only person in Israel to receive that honor in a decade. David Sheen, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for the reporting uh, you've been doing and I've been following somewhat for a long time now. And uh, there seems to be new developments in terms of what Israel is doing to refugees. Can you explain? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, uh, just briefly, we're speaking about East African refugees, mainly from Eritrea and Sudan. We're talking now about 40,000 people. The community once numbered about 66,000, but the government's already coerced over a third of the community to leave the country. So the the latest developments are that uh, the government is, in fact, issuing deportation notices to the refugees. It's already rounded into detention centers, and these people are refusing. They know that those who have already been coerced to self-deport have ended up uh, you know, in slave camps in the VR at the bottom of the Mediterranean. They've heard from their few friends that survived that harrowing journey, what fate awaits them. And with that, with that knowledge, they are refusing to self-deport. And so now the government has rounded them uh, into closed jail centers with, you know, indefinitely with no release date. And so uh, all the, the hundreds of refugees that it's already rounded into the so-called you know, semi-open, semi-closed detention centers, they've now gone, these hundreds of uh, refugees have gone on strike, on hunger strike, and they're refusing to eat until such time as their friends are no longer under this coercion, no longer jailed, uh, you know, on pain of, uh, you know, staying there forever until they consent, so-called, to to be deported back to Africa. So that's the latest. Now to zoom out just a little bit to understand where we're coming from, how how this whole thing occurred. Most people, you know, if they're just kind of stepping into the story midway, they may not have even heard of this issue. So let me maybe take you back a bit to figure out how we got to this point. Um, So first of all, I probably don't need to tell your readers. I'm sure that you've, uh, you know, heard at some point, um, certainly it's come up in the media recently, that these uh, slave camps in Libya where black people are being outright sold for slavery, that that's how little Black Lives Matter, that's how little the lives of refugees are worth. And of course, we're now living in a time where there are more refugees in the world than at any other point in human history, more than since World War II. Uh, something, the number is now something like 65 million refugees worldwide. People have been forced to leave their homes for various reasons. Um, and so, of course, most of the folks who flee their homes uh, end up being hosted in other de- developing nations, um, about 80%, according to U.N. statistics. And uh, that's generally where people are. If you look around Africa, many of these countries not only are you know dealing with their own infrastructural problems and you know providing for their own citizens, but also are inundated themselves with waves of refugees from surrounding countries. Um, and so about a decade ago, 
is when some of these, you know, mo- mo- most of these refugees, as I said, were spilling out into Africa, and many were trying to reach Europe. But some of them began about a decade ago to try to reach Israel. They, you know, they'd had, uh, they'd heard that Israel is a democracy, or they called itself a democracy. That's its reputation in the world, certainly. And so uh, some of these folks decided to try their luck in Israel. And at that point, in the mid-2000s, really there, there was no border fence to speak of. I mean, some kind of raggedy fence that you could have easily, uh, you know, crossed. Maybe you'd rip your clothes on it, but it, it, wouldn't, it wasn't impassable. And so at that point, um, people just, you know, they paid, uh, you know, smugglers to get them to the border, and then they would cross the border and just wait there. It wasn't that they, you know, tried to sneak into the country. They just followed international law as they're supposed to cross the border and just waited there for the Israeli army to pick them up. Israeli army would just check them for a couple of weeks, make sure they didn't have any communicable diseases and that they weren't terrorists or didn't harbor any, you know, negative intentions. And then the government would just give them a one-way ticket to Tel Aviv, to South Tel Aviv. And at that point, keep in mind, you know, folks didn't speak Hebrew. Uh, some many didn't speak English. And, they're arriving in a new country, new culture, with no idea of what's going on. So, you know, on one hand, okay, their lives have been spared, true enough. You know, whether they fled, uh, you know, lifelong servitude in the lifelong army of Eritrea, you know, the North, Ca- North Korea of Africa, or whether they were fleeing Sudan and ethnic cleansing in Darfur and other regions of the country. So people at, at least, you know, were physically safe, you know, by being allowed to cross the border. Um, and Israel didn't want to outright deport them immediately because that would just look horrible on its human rights record. Of course, Israel's human rights record is mainly pocked by its treatment of Palestinian people and the refugee problems that it created in 1948 and then exacerbated in 1967 when uh, Palestinian folks were driven from their land or not permitted to return to their land after the 1948 war. And so... Because of that, there's millions of people in the world who, who are refugees who can't come back to their homes because Israel doesn't allow them to come in because they're not Jews. So it's already, you know, working with uh, not the best reputation to begin with, to put it mildly, in terms of creating or contributing to the refugee problem. And, but now, uh, you know, we didn't want to outright uh, disfowl people, what's called in international legal terms, refoulement, uh, rather, which is when you actually force a refugee to go back to a place that's not safe for them. Um, of course, Israel is one of the authors of the, or the co-authors, the initiators of the refugee conventions that were adopted by countries across the world following the Holocaust, because, of course, Jewish people have been refugees throughout history, and most specifically in the 20th century, uh, you know, because of the, the Nazi Holocaust, and so many countries did not permit Jews who were fleeing Europe at that time to enter the country, to enter their countries and to seek, you know, safe haven. So because of that, Israel was kind of one of the initiators of the UN legal convention, but, or refugee conventions, rather. But, um, but once these people got to the country, there was no idea that the government would actually make any effort to, to make their acclimation any easier. You know, we look at other countries, liberal countries in the world, and they generally have two, one of two basic policies towards refugees. One of those options, right, is to say, okay, um, 
you know, we don't really have any resources to provide you with, but, you know, we want to give you the ability to support them yourselves. So here are work, legal work permits. You're now in the country. You can make your way in the Israeli economy just like anyone else can uh, with the legal right to work, and you can support yourself. And, uh, and, you know, at least give people that option. Of course, the other option, some Western nations, they, for some, you know, for whatever reason, their own internal reasons, they don't want um, immigrants to compete with their own native workforce. They want to be able to abide by, you know, international conventions and give people asylum, but they don't want them to, to uh, I don't know, increase their employment number or decrease their unemployment numbers or whatever the case is. So, so then they say, okay, well, we're not going to allow you to work, but we're going to give you a grant. We're going to give you a grant so you have a place to live. We're going to give you a grant so that you can learn the local language. We're going to give you a grant for food, and et cetera, et cetera. So those are the two ways that Western states uh, provide for refugees within their borders. Israel decided to do not this and not that, neither one of those. It didn't uh, grant them anything, even though Israel has an incredible infrastructure, because over the years it's encouraged much immigration, of course, only of Jewish people wanting to increase the number of Jews in the country. So there are, throughout the country, all these immigration centers where over the generations, you know, generations of Jews have moved to the country and, and it made it easier for them to, to become Israeli citizens. It did not use any of that infrastructure for these refugees, and it also didn't permit them to work and make their own way in society and support themselves so that they could um you know, be able to eke out a living. And as a result, it just, it's meant that this population has become, been incredibly impoverished. You know, in most cases, they just made it over the border with nothing with them except what they had on their backs. And they were just sent to the poorest neighbor. And essentially, the government turned the poorest neighborhoods of Tel Aviv, you know, which had already been suffering from disaster capitalism of the government, uh, just turned those neighborhoods into refugee camps by just sending the entire, you know, all the African refugees there, which just, you know, compounded the problem because then you're pitting two weak populations against one another. You're sending, now you're tripling the populations of these very poor neighborhoods and you're not increasing the services to those neighborhoods in any way to provide for, you know, three times the people, one-third the, the green space, et cetera, et cetera. And so, of course, what this did was it, you know, created much tension in those poor neighborhoods to begin with, and, and ramped up the racism. People, locals who had lived there, were now resentful of the new arrivals because they just kept coming, and the government didn't do anything to help, and it was only, uh, you know, a burden on their neighborhood. And, the, you know, the refugees weren't officially allowed to work to improve their own situations so they could move out of those neighborhoods into other, you know, uh, more middle-class neighborhoods. So the government caused the problem, and then, you know, and then quickly it started figuring, okay, well, we can leverage this, you know, as the, ra- the racism is ramping up, we can actually make political points from this. And then we see Israeli politicians uh, actually inciting racist hatred. You know, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with this from the American context, uh, you know, calling refugees, saying that they are criminals and that they're terrorists and they're murderers and rapists and, you know, the disease and you know every negative thing you could possibly think of. Incidentally, all the things that had been said about Jewish people over the over the generations, you know, uh, the same kind of rhetoric was used to dehumanize these African refugees. And you know, for years, of course, politicians have done this against Palestinian people, and you know, it, it, it helps 
sadly, it helps them in the polls. You know, it actually, when uh, a person would make such a racist statement, instead of, you know, being uh, punished in some way or relieved of their command, just, just the opposite. They would be promoted. They would get a, a better position in the government. They would actually be put, you know, given the rank of minister for making statements such as these. So uh, in 2012, we started to see, you know, like, or even in 2010, we see religious leaders, okay, hundreds of chief rabbis across the country signing religious edicts, forbidding Jewish people from renting apartments to African refugees. You can imagine this. And, and of course, this isn't theoretical. Uh, this really happens. People don't rent to African refugees because of this, because they're so told. And, and these rabbis, you know, they're, we're not just talking about spiritual leaders, so-called. We're talking about people who are paid for my tax money, right, who receive state salaries and can make statements such as these. You would, you would think of them as, you know, incredibly offensive and incredibly racist. But if anything, you know, again, their salaries were increased, not decreased afterwards. There was no punishment given. They didn't have to relieve some of their command. And so this is the kind of discourse from political leaders, from religious leaders. And uh, we, we soon see that the level of racism ramps up to the point where we see vigilante violence against us, especially peaking in 2012 when we have African homes being firebombed and African kindergartens being firebombed. In later years, we see a one-year-old black baby in her mother's arms, you know, standing on the streets of Tel Aviv, and an Israeli man comes and stabs the baby in the head, if you can imagine this. We see, in recent years, actual full-on lynchings, like lynch mobs, where Israelis will pounce on an African man and beat them to death, actually lynch the man in public, and nothing happens to the people who do it. They play it off as, oh, we thought he was a terrorist. Oh, we thought he was flirting with, the, you know, like very, very similar to the Emmett Till story of right. yesteryear. You know, you got to go, not to just uh, minimize the amount of racism today in the United States, but you kind of have to go back to the 1950s. Uh, you know, again, if people know the story of Emmett Till, a uh, young teenager from Chicago who went down to visit his relatives in Mississippi, and he was accused of, uh, you know, uh, smiling or flirting or winking or, or something uh, at a white woman and her uh, her friends then or her husband whoever accompanied her became so incensed how dare a black person flirt with a white woman and so they actually beat him to death to the point where his face was unrecognizable and that exact same thing happened in Tel Aviv suburb uh, the twin cities with Chicago Illinois and right outside of City Hall, um, uh, just a year and a half ago, these teenagers, again, a black man walking by, right by City Hall, and you know, exchanged a couple words with uh, some teenagers on the bench, park bench. You know, didn't approach. Just like ten seconds of conversation, and he walked off. And then within seconds, they just pounced on him and beat him to death because you know they were so offended that a you know black man who's not Jewish would dare to speak to these white Jewish girls, how dare he? And so they, they beat him to death. Yeah. And and this is the kinds of hatred that we see, but they're never reported on in the U.S. media, that for years and years, while this hate campaign has been going on, there's been no efforts by the mainstream media in the U.S. to report on it in any way. 
And so this community has been you know, completely abandoned. Of course, as I said, there's refugees all over the world, so there's no shortage of other groups that are suffering, refugees from Afghanistan, refugees from Syria. But, you know, we, we expect, but at the same time, all of Israel's neighbors are taking in those refugees. Lebanon taking in millions of refugees. Jordan, Israel's neighbor to the east, taking in millions of refugees. So, the, the, you know, with, with all the problems of the, that refugees face in the world today, uh, as I said, refuge, other countries are doing their part, or at least trying to do their part. Israel's not just not trying to do its part, it's actually got the lowest refugee acceptance rate of any country in the world, less than 1%. And, uh, and now, the, the latest phase is to just round them up, deportation notices, you've got till April 1st to leave the country, if you don't, you'll be jailed indefinitely. We don't want you here because you're non-white, non-Jews. Even though there are only just tens of thousands, which is less than 1% of the population, even such a small community is so offensive to people who have been primed to hate foreigners, to hate non-Jews by nationalist governments successively again and again over and over. And this is now the result that sadly many of the, much of the population, a majority of the Israeli population supports the government's efforts to drive them all out. And that's where we stand here in 2018. We're speaking with David Sheen from Israel-Palestine. David, you say that that refugees come to Israel in part because they've heard it called a democracy. And you know that Israel has always pretended to be these two contradictory things, a purely Jewish state and a democracy. I wonder if uh, the word is spreading to potential refugees that it ain't a democracy, it's not the place to come. And I wonder whether Israel... Uh, is going to to tend in the future to to back off on that false advertising to find that <laughs> you don't have to pretend to be a democracy to get money from the United States, uh, <laughs> of course. And if you call yourself a democracy, human beings try to come live with you, uh, and that's so undesirable that they'll just that they'll just drop that pretense. <laughs> yeah, you're very right. I mean, to answer your questions, um, first of all. In terms of Israel switching its messaging up, okay, well, first of all, the first thing that the government did, which I uh, did not mention earlier, was that in order to stem the immigration, because as I mentioned, when these people arrived on Israel's borders, there was no real border fence to speak of, and so they were able to, to cross the bench of the country without too much difficulty. So really the first thing that the government did uh, once it set its war on refugees in motion was to build a wall on its border. You know, there is a, a massive desert, the Sinai Desert, that separates Israel from its neighbor to the south, Egypt, from the rest of the African continent. So that and the, the peace deal with Egypt essentially secured that southern border. And now that they're, you know, that the, they needed something in addition to that, you know, vast amount of space, they built a high-tech fence. And it took them about a year to do so, and they spent you know, billions of shekels, but eventually that was in place. By 2013, the government had built this high-tech fence, and at that point, uh, the the influx of refugees from South Saharan Africa trickled down to next to nil. Okay, so so since it was, we're only talking about people who entered the country from 2007 to 2012. 
that was the 66,000 entry. Now there's no more African refugees entering because there's no way for them to do so. There's no way for them to be able to surmount the... I mean, sure, there are a couple, like a handful. Maybe every year there'll be a dozen. But in practical terms, it's reduced to zero. So at that point, you know, some people were hoping, of course, you know, uh, if you believe in human rights, if you believe in refugee rights, you believe that uh, that migration is a human right and that people should have the right to continue to. But in any case, you know, let's say every state, according to the state system that we live in, has a sovereign right to protect its borders, to defend its borders, to close its borders. So the Israeli government did so. It, It built this fence so no more people can enter from the south. All right. But what about these people there? As I said, they're such a small minority, and none of them have caused, you know, none of them have done any terrorist attacks or have given anyone any reason to think that they would pose any threat to the state. They're people fleeing for their lives. So at that point, the government could have just given them amnesty and said, okay, we will just grant you all refugee status, or just like every, you know, Western government examine their refugee requests on their own merits, you know, just read them, uh, read the files and find out are each of is each person, are they eligible for refugee rights or aren't they? If they aren't, they have to go. If they are, they can stay. But the government, it then built a system that was designed to fail every refugee request. They got a man um, who used to work in the Canadian refugee system and he, a man named Joel Moss, an Orthodox Jewish man from Montreal, and he had worked for the Canadian government analyzing refugee requests for many years. And so when he realized Israel was receiving its first wave of immigrants, he thought, you know, he thought, okay, well, I can contribute to the Israeli society in this way. I can help, uh, you know, build this refugee uh, system to, in order to answer this, this new uh you know, problem that Israel's facing or topic that Israel's facing. And so they recruited him to do so. He built this system. And then as soon as he had done so, he immediately went public and said, I, you know, I can't believe I did this. You know, the Israeli government just manipulated me, used me, and it created, it took that system and it's using it in order to fail every request, in order to reject every applicant. So instead of, you know, creating something, that would actually deal with the legitimate issue of people's refugee requests. It just created a bureaucracy for the, you know, to, to give the appearance that it was, you know, uh, abiding by international regulations. But in fact, it was just the appearance of that. And, you know, the idea is just to reject every request or 99.9% of all these requests. So, so that's in terms of actually the, the continued influx. Now, in terms of what you, what you said about, well, why would, you know, does Israel even need to claim it's a democracy anymore, you know? Um, of course, uh, you know, it, it's the influx of African immigrants has dropped off, so it doesn't have to worry about the PR, uh, you know, it doesn't have to, you know, give, bad P, give itself bad PR in order to dissuade more Africans from coming. They can't reach the country anyways. But, but more to the point, is there any need anymore now that the far right, is increasing its power all over the world, certainly in Eastern Europe and most definitely in the United States of America with the, with, with the Trump White House. So uh, Israel no longer needs to play to those audiences. If it once you know, saw Western European states with all their problems and uh, you know, all the human rights violations and all the arms trade and everything that they're, you know, all the neocolonial you know, 
stuff that's going on in, in the third world that, that their hands are, you know, bloodied with. But still, at least there's a pretense of, uh, of having a human rights record, of, you know, appealing to people's better nature to improve a human rights record. Um, now Israel no longer sees those countries as its natural allies, just the opposite. It sees those countries that besmirch the idea of human rights, that, you know, call for uh, ethnostates, that, you know, despise refugees, that crack down on human rights groups. It sees those countries as their natural allies. And we see it in, with Israel's relationship with Hungary, with Poland, and also, of course, with the Trump White House. Uh, traditionally, the American Jewish community has, I don't need to tell you this, of course, uh, on average, of course, there's a great diversity of views, like every community, but uh, on average, the American Jewish community has historically tr- traditionally voted for more liberal policies, certainly around the issue of immigration, seeing themselves as historically as an immigrant group, even though that you know that that's mainly in the past, but still seeing themselves as such, and therefore... Uh, identifying with the struggle of the immigrants and with the refugee and generally supporting, you know, pro-immigration policies, amnesty for undocumented Americans, that's been the case. But now the Israeli government does it, feels like it no longer needs those traditional allies, even though they themselves are Jews, uh, and that's supposedly its constituent group calling itself, you know, the state of the Jews or the Jewish state. It no longer needs to appeal to those groups. So, uh, it's perfectly happy to now be only uh, like a unipolar or a, a unipartisan issue, where it only needs to try to solidify its base in the Republican Party and the Tea Party and, you know, whatever other far right-wing evangelical Christian groups it can count on for support, come hell or high water, no matter how many settlements it builds and no matter how many African refugees it supports. Uh, and and that, that's that's what we see now. We see that, you know, Netanyahu stands by Trump no matter how egregious his crimes against the American people are, no matter how far back he's turning the clock on civil rights in the United States. You know, Netanyahu stands by his side, and in turn, the American far right stands by Netanyahu's side. Um, David, we got about certain. one minute left. I wonder if okay. I could All ask right. you, apart from Netanyahu and the government uh, and the rallies, sure. uh, or is there polling? What's, where's the public opinion? Sure. Do people support the inhumane and criminal actions of deporting yeah. refugees to horrible fates? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, okay, the Israeli public were polled twice on this, once exactly four years ago and once just a couple weeks ago. And both times we've seen that the vast majority of the Israeli public supports government efforts to round up and remove these tens of thousands of African refugees from Israeli cities and to round them into desert detention centers and to send them back to Africa, sadly. Um, of course, the percentage is higher amongst when, when they do a, a division and they see how the Jewish public responds as opposed to how the Palestinian citizens of Israel Amongst Jewish citizens, there is even higher support, slightly lower support for it amongst uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. But, but across the board, sadly, very high support, more than a you know, like a very large majority of folks. Of course, there is a sizable minority, people speaking out. We see this more in recent weeks, pilots 
Holocaust survivors, doctors, psychologists, artists, students, Thank goodness. lots of groups speaking out, but I, not enough, not I, nearly I, enough. I'm so, very glad they oh do, God. and I very much wish we had time to continue. Easiest interview I've ever done in my life. Uh, DavidSheen.com is David Sheen's website, David, S-H-E-E-N. Uh, check it out. We'll have the link at TalkNationRadio.org. David, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.